Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Welcome along to day three of Bangor Worldwide and the Bible readings in First Thessalonians led by Gary Miller. And great to have Gary sharing with us so far. And Gary today is going to be sharing from First Thessalonians chapter two, verse seventeen to chapter three, verse thirteen. If you've enjoyed what Gary has had to share, you can get a hold of some of his books and other resources online or at the Faith Mission Bookshop. I'm going to hand over to Gary now, and then after Gary shares. Ruth is going to lead us in a song called In Christ Alone. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we ask now that you give us the help that we need to understand your word, to see Jesus more clearly, and to live in the light of his coming. For we pray this in his name. Amen. We've been living here in Australia for almost nine years. And I've got to say, the big thing that we missed since leaving Ireland is people. Not long before we left Dublin, at the start of 2012, Hannah, our babysitter and honorary big sister to our daughters, who'd been part of the church family for the previous 11 years, finally became a Christian. It was a source of great rejoicing in our family. And after we left, Hannah started to date Pete. Pete's the Liverpudlian who introduced himself to me in 2004 with the words, Hi, I'm Pete. I've just moved in down the road. I'm not a Christian. I thought I'd better tell you that before my mum, who's standing over there, comes over and tells you that you need to convert me. Which, to be fair, his mum did about 30 seconds later. In God's kindness, Peter became a Christian two years later, went through some huge financial issues, lost his business in the global financial crisis, By the time we left Dublin, he was just getting back to his feet, and then he and Hannah got together. It was just fantastic. When the invitation to their wedding arrived, we were gutted not to be able to go because we were separated by half the planet. It was one of the few times where our girls wailed, why did we have to come to Australia? Because being separated is sometimes hard. Now, if you can understand anything of that... Uh, anything of what it feels like to be in one place when you'd long to be in another. And surely over these past months during this whole COVID period, we've all felt that in some measure. If you feel that, then you'll get what's going on in this passage. Paul longs to be with the Thessalonians, but he can't go to be with them. The section of Thessalonians we're looking at today isn't complex. Uh, From 2.17 through to 3.13. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica to say, you are our great joy. We told you following Jesus would be tough, but you've kept going. Now we long for you to keep growing. So we're pleading with God to let us come to help you, asking him to deepen his work in your lives. That's pretty much it. There aren't any translation issues or big interpretative difficulties in this section. But reading it does ask four pretty searching questions of us. 
Here's the first. You'll see it in verses 17 to 20. What is your joy? 2, 17 to 18 is very intense. Paul writes, but since we were torn away, literally orphaned from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul compares the pain of separation from the Thessalonian church to losing your parents in childhood. It's traumatic. The language just ramps up the emotion at every point. John Chrysostom, the fourth century preacher, rightly says that Paul chooses his words deliberately so that he might sufficiently show the pain of his soul. It's killing Paul to be cut off from the church in Thessalonica that he planted. Why does he feel so strongly? Well, because there's something about the gospel that creates new relationships and deep affections. Becoming a Christian immediately intensifies our relationships. You see, there there is, or at least there should be, a different quality to your relationships at church. Why? Because the gospel doesn't only make us sons and daughters of the living God, it makes us brothers and sisters. We don't just get Christ when we come to him, we get each other, whether we like it or not. Jesus says as much in Matthew 19, where the compensation for giving things up for Jesus is gaining hundreds of parents and siblings. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Becoming a Christian often does disrupt our natural family relationships, but it also gives us a whole new set of relationships which are real and precious and at times similarly demanding. This is why being part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ can be so hard as well as being so rich and is often both. See, as the church, we can never start thinking as consumers because we're family. A few months ago, um, as everyone else in our family was sick, I went to church on my own. I slipped in the back seat and watched as the church filled up. It filled up with a bewildering mixture of culture and cultural and ethnic groups in a huge range of ages. I realized there were very few people like me. Balding, middle-aged Northern Irish Australians are, I realized, a threatened minority. But there were people from Burma and Borneo and Brazil and Papua New Guinea and Indonesia and Korea and China and Malaysia and Nepal and Sudan and Gabon and Cameroon and Malawi and New Zealand, and there was even an Englishman. There are kids and students and young marrieds and pensioners. And as I looked around, I just got this overwhelming sense that they are family, my brothers and sisters. I belong to them and they belong to me. I don't just go there, I I belong there. Now, I have to say that our church family, it's a new church family. There's a lot of coming and going. The church is in the city centre. It's a highly mobile congregation. And I'd be lying if I said I always feel like I was coming home when I walk in. But whether I feel like that or not, it's the truth. It's reality. God has made me part of his family, this family. And I belong to them and they belong to me. 
That's how we need to think about church, the local gathering of which we're a part. That's how it should be. That's how it was for Paul. And that's why for Paul, the pain is so intense when Satan throws up a series of roadblocks to their reunion. It's interesting, isn't it? That Paul, for all his relentless logic and robust theological agenda, is both deeply emotionally engaged and also really quick to remind the Thessalonians and us of the nature of the spiritual battle. He knows that in every situation, we're up against forces which have at root a deeply personal character. Satan and his minions are committed to frustrating and undermining God's work in the world through the church. Satan, it seems, is also preoccupied with people. He loathes the closeness and the warmth which God's people share with each other because we have all been united together with Christ by faith. Satan hates it so much, he will do anything to disrupt and destroy and create distance. It's no accident that church conflict is so prevalent, for it's the particular delight of the evil one to stir this up. But Paul's focus isn't on Satan here, but on the Thessalonians themselves. Verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crying of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You're our glory and our joy. Do you get that? Paul says the Thessalonians themselves are his hope, his crying of boasting, his glory, and actually twice, his joy. Paul calls this local church his hope. It seems that he's envisaging the day when the Lord Jesus himself returns. And on that day, where is his confidence? Where is the evidence that he, Paul, hadn't wasted his life? Where is the proof that he'd lived faithfully for the Lord Jesus? Paul says, it's you. You Thessalonians are the evidence I've lived for Jesus. You're the reason that I'll be able to stand confidently before the Lord Jesus when he holds me to account. Now, there's a surprising thought. On the last day, we'll, we will be lined up before Christ with our local church, and all we'll be able to do is point to one another and say, yep, that's all we've got. Now, notice here that Paul isn't talking about his salvation. It's not that he hasn't worked out justification by faith alone yet, or he has momentarily slipped into a works-based view of righteousness. He's not saying that he's justified by the Thessalonians alone, or through church planting alone. Paul's not thinking about his salvation. He's thinking about the way in which Jesus Christ will hold us to account for the way in which we've served him. And for Paul, how can he look forward to that day without panicking, without crumbling? He can do that because of the Thessalonians. People to whom he has explained the gospel, people for whom he has modeled living the gospel in God's strength, people whom God has brought to life through his ministry and started to bring maturity in Christ through the message which Paul preached. See, Paul's assessment of his life and ministry is based on people whom God has changed through his word. See, for Paul, ministry, the Christian life, is all about people. That's why he calls the local church in Thessalonica his crown of boasting. Back in Ezekiel in the Old Testament, the same language is used of the crown that God places on his bride, Israel. And that may be the background here. Or Paul may just be thinking of the victor's crown in Greek athletic contests. 
Either way, Paul is boasting about people, people whom God has transformed through the message of the cross. See, Paul's really happy to boast about what God has done in the lives of other people. Now, if something in your brain is saying, hold on a minute, didn't Paul say we're only supposed to boast in Jesus? Well, if you're thinking that, you'd be right. In Galatians 6, Paul writes, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. His boast is always in what God has done for us in Christ. But what has God done? He's made it possible for people like you and me, people like the Thessalonians, for people like Paul himself to know and love and delight in God. See, in Galatians, Paul's boasting was just raving about God's work in him. Here in Thessalonians, Paul's boasting in the cross means raving about God's work in them. The crowning achievement of Paul's ministry is people whom God has changed. See, whether he's thinking about himself or the Thessalonians, Paul's only boast is in what God has done in Christ for and in people like you and me. Years ago, I remember Lucy, our eldest daughter, asking for my help to clean her black school shoes. I got the shoes out. I spread the newspaper over the table. I got out the shoe polish. I took the top off the shoe polish. I held her little hand as we first spread the polish with one brush, then rubbed the shoes to a shine with another. I then cleaned the polish off Lucy, the table, the floor, packed everything away while she grabbed her shoes and ran through to Fiona, my wife, shouting, look, mommy, I cleaned my shoes. Our contribution to God's work in other people is similar. (laughs) That's why boasting in people is really boasting in God. See, there is nothing more precious than celebrating boasting in the work of God and bringing people to know himself, which he graciously allows us to be part of. Paul actually adds that this is our glory, as God himself allows us to bask in the glow of what he is doing through the gospel of which we, Paul, are servants. We, like Paul, are servants. That's an astonishing idea, isn't it? God allows us to be part of his work in his universe to share or bask in his glory when we contribute basically nothing apart from faithfulness. And we can only be faithful if we're enabled to do so by God himself. And yet God allows us to share in, bask in, to glory in the light that radiates from those who are transformed by the gospel. Perhaps you can begin to see why Paul refers to them as his joy. Seeing people come to Christ and grow in Christ, which brings the ultimate honor to Christ, is what motivates him. It's his biggest thrill in life and ministry, his driving goal. His life is all about people. See, the gospel has completely reshaped the way in which Paul looks at the world, and in particular, the way in which he looks at other people. In 2 Corinthians five sixteen. Paul says that because of the gospel from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, no one according to a worldly point of view. For Paul, everyone on this planet is either a new creation who's being transformed into the likeness of Christ or someone who's in desperate danger of hell and judgment. And because of this, his entire life and ministry is people-centered. It's all about people. That's his joy. 
So what's yours and mine? Is it people? I know it sounds strange, but it is sadly and strangely possible to be passionate about ministry, about theology, about the church, even passionate about cross-cultural mission, but not actually to be terribly interested in people. Could that be true of you, of me? If it is, we need to be warned. A passion for ministry or mission A passion for Christ that is devoid of love for and commitment to and ultimately joy in other people is ultimately really only about us. And it is scarily possible to throw ourselves into living for ourselves, even in the context of the church, to to dream big gospel dreams for ourselves, to master the intricacies of biblical or systematic theology for ourselves, to preach for ourselves, pastor for ourselves, to build ministries for ourselves, to chair meetings and lead Bible studies for ourselves, to strategize and read and go to conferences for ourselves, to come to church for ourselves. It's all sadly dangerously possible. It may even, in God's strange kindness, be used powerfully, despite our self-preoccupation. But if that's what we are like, then we have missed the heart and the point and the joy of the gospel. Because gospel-fueled joy always finds its energy and its destination in God as he transforms other people. So what is your joy? If it isn't seeing people come to know Christ and growing in Christ, then listen to Paul and be rebuked. Now it would be a great time, if that's the case, to deal with your selfishness and reorient your quest for joy to seeing people changed by the gospel. That's the first question. The second you'll find in the first five verses of chapter three, not what's your joy, but what do you expect Now, at this point, some of us at least will be hoping that Paul lightens up a little. We've already had more than today's ration of emotional intensity. But alas, there is no relief as we move into chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, uh, the verb here conjures up an image of Paul desperately almost bursting as he tries to stop his compassion for them leaking out. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. We know from Acts 17 that Athens wasn't exactly Paul's favorite place, but Paul was prepared to face it on his own rather than remain in the dark about the progress of the church in Thessalonica. So he sent Timothy back to the city probably because unlike Paul and Silas, he hadn't been banned from returning. Now, Paul clearly has massive respect and affection for his young protege. He describes him both as his brother and as God's co-worker and sends him both to teach, comfort or strengthen them as they face what he calls these afflictions. What was Timothy to say to them? To teach the Thessalonians some new content and urge him to live out what they already knew. He was to start by reminding them of the fact that when we're Christians, suffering and opposition goes with the territory. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul, it seems, never tired of warning new believers that life with Jesus was going to be tough. 
But sometimes we have to experience that firsthand before we actually believe it. In the, the late 90s, when I was the uh, assistant and then associate minister here in Hamilton Road, I got to confess that as I stood in the pulpit each week, I watched with mild scorn as friends of mine struggled to control their particularly boisterous toddler. Alistair Eves, some of you may remember, was an elder here uh, before he was taken tragically early to be with the Lord. Alistair would stand singing whilst his eldest would make a strategic bolt up and down the pew. I used to look on and think, what are they doing? How hard can it be to control a toddler? Surely all it takes is a bit of determination and discipline. May I take this opportunity to repent publicly of every thought in that general direction I ever had concerning Alistair and to say somewhat belatedly that I now get what Alistair and Janet were going through. Experience has convinced me over the years of the reality of the struggle. The inevitability of the struggle. Parenting is harder than we can ever express. Now here, Paul wants to fast track the Thessalonians to the place where they believe him when he says that when it comes to suffering for the gospel, it is both hard and unavoidable. We were destined for this. Paul says we are destined to suffer for the gospel. It's vital that we get this for a couple of reasons. One is a biblical theological reason. To become a Christian is to be caught up in a conflict which has its roots somewhere before Genesis 3 and will not finally be resolved until the end of Revelation 20. We suffer because there is deep conflict at the heart of the universe. We really need to know and remember that. And the second reason we suffer for the gospel is that God himself has committed in his sovereignty to using every aspect of our lives, not least our suffering, whether it's self-inflicted, the result of the evil of others, or for no obvious reason at all, to drive us to his grace, growing us in our knowledge and love of him. That's often a bit harder to hold on to. See, for Paul, ultimately God himself stands behind all our suffering, using it for good, even as Satan schemes and uses ungodly people to do their worst. Close up, we see evil people at work. Pull back a little and Satan comes into view. When we take in the full panorama at its widest angle, it becomes clear that God in his majesty is using even the vilest evil for our good and his glory. This means that suffering always brings both danger and the opportunity to grow and mature in Christ. Let me say that again. Suffering always brings both danger and the opportunity to grow and mature in Christ. And in the case of the Thessalonians, it means that Paul is both concerned for them Verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I learned to send to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And he's also confident that God is at work in them through their suffering. For we're destined to suffer for the gospel. If we're Christians, this is how it's going to be. So as we sit here, going through another year of the worldwide, albeit under very different circumstances. As we start to emerge from this COVID crisis, what do we expect life is going to be like 
for the rest of 2020 or 2021 or five years or 10 years down the track. Now, of course, there's a whole pile of stuff we don't and can't know, but this much is clear. We can expect to suffer for the gospel because as the people of Christ, we are caught up in the cosmic conflict between God and Satan and because God has chosen to work in us through suffering. We can expect this year and next year and every year to bring suffering which will in turn bring to us both danger and the opportunity to grow and mature in Christ. So are we ready for that? Braced for what will come, even as we have the joy of seeing God at work in us and through us. See, in these days, God is urging us to get ready. James Denny once more expresses this so helpfully. The true Christian will seek in all the afflictions of life to combine the courage and hope which flows from the sovereignty of God and the humility and fear which flows from the danger of falling. We should expect to be tested to the limit and should expect to grow even in the midst of pain. And we should constantly remind others that this is the shape that life as God has given us. Which takes us to the third question. What is your joy? What do you expect? And what's lacking in your faith? 3 verses 6 to 10. As we get to 3 verse 6, Paul keeps writing in the same impassioned, deeply personal vein. Just look at how many personal pronouns he uses as he builds up to the next key statement. 3 verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love... That's either love for God or more likely here, Paul. And reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you're standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face, and may supply what's lacking in your faith. See how deeply relational this is? Paul's language here is very extravagant. In, in verse 6, Paul actually says that the report Timothy brought him was sheer gospel. He says in verse 8, For now we really live if you're standing fast in the Lord. All the joy we feel is actually the joy which we rejoice with for your sake before God. And all this affection spills over in the desire to see them and crucially to supply what's lacking in your faith. Now, nowhere in these letters does Paul spell out exactly what he thought was lacking in their faith, nor does he clarify whether he's thinking of pieces of the theological puzzle that they hadn't yet grasped, so gaps in their understanding of the faith, as Paul often uses the expression or whether he's talking about deficiencies in the way in which they exercised faith, so like flaws in the way they're applying what they already knew. Given what we find in the rest of these letters, I suspect it's both content and help with practice. Calvin helpfully comments in these verses, we see how necessary it is to give constant attention to doctrine for teachers were not appointed merely to lead men to faith in Christ, but to perfect the faith which has been begun in them. Yeah, we need to teach people new things from the Bible, but we also need relentlessly to point them back to things they've forgotten, not grasped, or just aren't living out. To supply what is lacking in people's faith then takes us to the very heart of what it means for us to live together for the Lord Jesus. 
I'd go as far as to say that asking this question first of ourselves and then of other people takes us to the core of what it means to be a servant of the Lord Jesus. If we're not regularly asking of ourselves what's lacking in my faith, and constantly asking, how can I, in the mercy of God, supply to those around me what's lacking in theirs, there's something drastically wrong. Because when God is at work in us by his Spirit, he produces both the desire in us to grow in our love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and a matching desire to help other people to do the same. See, it's about loving God and loving other people. It's not complicated, just difficult. So, right now, ask yourself, what's lacking in my faith? Now, I don't know about you, but I always find it both easier and less painful to point out what's lacking in other people's faith. And don't worry, we'll come to that in a moment. But first, we have to do the hard yards of examining ourselves. So, as honestly as flawed people like you and me can do, let's ask the question, what's lacking in my faith? Now, for some of us, at least part of the problem may be a lack of information vast tracts of the Bible we've never actually read, significant areas of Christian theology we've not thought about, huge tracts of the history of Christianity that we've never, never encountered, let alone learned from. And if that's us, then the way forward is pretty clear. Throw yourself into growing in the knowledge of God as you have this precious opportunity. Now, there are loads of ways you can do that. Talk to your pastor, your elders about what the options are. But at this moment in history, in the English-speaking world at least, we've access to better books, more material online, better theological training than at any point in history. As we do this, however, one of the side effects will be that we realize that the lack of information is seldom the main issue. The biggest obstacle to our growth and maturity is generally not what we don't know, it's what we don't do. What's lacking in our faith is all too often a matter not of what we don't know, but what we don't actually live out. It's the fact that for all our talk of gospel-centered living, we're not really quite so good at pulling it off. Really? Really? What's lacking in our faith is that even though we happily proclaim that we're saved by grace through faith, when we get up in the morning, we still act as if we are nice people who are more than capable of impressing God. Even though we loudly explain to anyone who will listen that pride is what made the world go wrong, at the same time we gently stroke our own egos, congratulating ourselves for being so clear on the gospel and so eloquent in its defense and so committed to mission. Even though we know that God has lavished his love on us and calls us to love each other, even though we know that Christ has died for us, we steadfastly refuse to die to ourselves from moment to moment and resolutely put ourselves first. Even though we know that we are nothing more and nothing less than forgiven sinners, we still plunge into despair when we fail and get swollen heads and hearts when we don't. Even though we know that God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, we still can't cope when things go wrong and wilt in the face of suffering. Even though we know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, holding out to us the certain hope of new life with God that lasts forever in the new creation, we still live as if all, this is all there is and as if stuff really matters and we are immortal. Our apathy, our materialism, our racism, our sectarianism, our half-heartedness, our arrogance, our smugness, our pride. 
regularly expose what's lacking in our faith. So right now, what's your pressing need? What's lacking in your faith? The incredible thing is, of course, that our God has already met that need, whatever it is, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. Every lack, every shortfall, every need, every weakness finds its solution in him. All we need is Christ. What we need to do is take hold of him again in the gospel. In many ways, asking the question, what is lacking in my faith is painful and confronting. But not only does it open us up to receive the grace of Christ in fresh ways in the gospel, but it also enables us to ask the question, what is lacking in your faith? And sets us up in the grace of God to be used to supply it through the gospel. You see, the more we know of our own hearts, the more aware we will be of the range of possible problems we're dealing with in other people the more we'll realize how much help we all need and the more we'll realize that what is lacking in your faith is at the heart of all pastoral work. You see, this should shape the way in which we speak the gospel into one another's lives in thousands of encounters, week by week, month by month, in the church and in the community. When we meet our brothers and sisters, the unspoken question running through our minds should always be what is lacking in their faith? What don't they get about the gospel? Where are the gaping holes in their understanding? In what ways are they struggling to live in the light of his coming? Why are they so quick to criticize? Why so slow to serve? Why so confident in their own abilities? Why so detached, so eager to please? Why so unaware of other people? How can I supply what is lacking in their faith through the gospel? You see, we're to ask of other people, the very same questions we need to ask of ourselves. And as we look to other people to to ask those questions of us and answer for us, together we will build each other up in what Paul calls elsewhere the most holy faith. This is the main game, both in our own relationship with Christ, which can never be a solo sport, and in our relationships in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as we serve Christ by serving each other. I pray that you'll have the courage to ask what's lacking in your faith. And I pray that you'll have the strength to live, to ask it constantly of others for the sake of Christ and to throw yourselves into supplying what's lacking in their faith in the gospel. And then one last question, which has already been flagged up in verse 10. What are you praying for? This section of the letter draws to a close with a short prayer, which is made up of two relatively simple requests. As Paul prays for himself and for the Thessalonians, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. For himself, Paul prays that he would be able to visit them to strengthen them in the gospel. Hardly counts as a prayer for himself, really, because he prays that he would be able to serve them by enabling them to deepen their grasp of the gospel. 
just as a matter of interest, is that how you're praying for yourself just now? That God would use you today, this week, to enrich and equip and embolden other people as you throw yourself into serving Christ by serving his church today and tomorrow for the rest of your life? Are you praying that day by day by day in the stuff you love and the stuff that drives you mad and causes you pain and distress, that God would work his truth deeper into you and sharpen your convictions and warm your heart for the sake of other people? Is that how you're praying? If not, this would be a really good time to start. And what about the way in which you pray for others? Paul prays that God would work in them to increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. He asks God to do what he's promised and work the gospel deeper into their lives so that it would overflow in love. He prays that they would love each other in the Christian community and that they would love the entire community in Thessalonica, including presumably those Jews and Gentiles who were persecuting them. Isn't that a great thing to pray for other people? That they would love like God himself? As we saw uh, in the previous talk from Paul's own example. I wonder when the last time was that we prayed for ourselves like that, let alone anyone else. One of the things we have to keep emphasizing here, here at college is the vital importance of loving people both in the church and in the community. Been around the traps for quite a while now. I have never heard a church complaining that their pastor loves them too much. No community rejects an arrival from another culture because they were simply too loving. Nobody ever complained that someone from church had done, done a part-time course or spent time reading the Bible and as a result loved people in their growth group more than before. You see, theology is vital, strategy is important, preaching is critical, evangelism is necessary. But unless we love people, we're wasting our breath. I don't know if you've noticed, but if we love people with a consistent, costly love, they will be so much quicker to listen to us, so much quicker to forgive us, so much quicker to love us back. So let's pray for each other that we will grow in our love for the people who surround us, people in our families and our church families and our community. In Greg Beale's commentary on Thessalonians, we read this. The Christian community is the school in which we learn to love. Like great musicians who practice tedious drills for long hours, Christians practice their skills at home in order to sing in public. In the community, love is commanded and modeled, and here is where it must be lived and practiced. This does not mean that love is limited to the boundaries of the Christian community, but if the church doesn't live by the model and teaching of its founder, Jesus, how can it expect, can it expect others to do so, or to hearts called to join with them? Will you join me in praying that in our church families there will be a reawakening of the radical love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I suspect that in our increasingly secular environment, it will be a long time before anyone will listen to a word we say unless they see our love. It is the fruit of the gospel. 
It is a prerequisite if we are to come through the final judgment when Christ returns with his people, his faithful followers through the ages. So we pray for one another. May he establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul prays that God will do what he's promised, producing this stunning quality of love among his people and flowing out from his people, which will demonstrate that God has already transformed them, made them holy through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our prayers for each other, for ourselves, for the church, really are too small. We pray for the weather and medical procedures and exams and travel plans. Paul prays that God would produce this extravagant gospel-shaped love for the people of God and for the world, a love that will future-proof us in the end time as the end time people of God. So what are you praying for? As I said at the beginning, this is not a difficult passage. In many ways, this first letter of Thessalonians is not a difficult book. But boy, is it searching. What's your joy? What do you expect from life? What's lacking in your faith? What are you praying for? This chapter is basically a challenge to live in Christ, to delight in Christ and his people, to be prepared to suffer for Christ and to grow in our knowledge of and love for Christ even through suffering to embrace the fact that there is always more of Christ and to cry to God to give us Christ and to enable us to love like Christ. For all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Which is why it falls to us to live in the light of his coming. The coming one in whom God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. Amen.
challenge to us today and if you are a regular Bangor writer if you're enjoying what you see and hear here can I encourage you to consider becoming a friend of Bangor Worldwide there's a separate video and that will show you all of the details of what that entails and some of the benefits of it as well but we do rely on people like you being friends and supporters and we would encourage you just to consolidate that relationship with us Let's close our time today in prayer. Father, our hearts have been searched today as we consider what our joy is, what we expect from life, but what is lacking in our faith, and what are we praying for? But Father, I pray that the answer to all of these would be gospel-centered answers, that our joy would be in Christ that we would live for Christ, we would delight in Christ, we would indeed suffer for Christ, and that we would grow in Christ. And Father, we pray that for ourselves as individuals, but Father, we also pray that for your church in these days, that the church would be known as a community of people who are living, delighting, suffering, and growing in Christ. And Father, would you help us to love like Christ? In the different relationships, Father, thank you that we are indeed adopted into a family, brothers and sisters, locally and globally. Father, would you help us to be prayerful for each other in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Join us this evening for our evening celebration at half past seven, where it's going to be lots to hear, to be encouraged by what God is doing around the world.
I absolutely love the week of Bangor Worldwide as we gather together in the mornings to pray together, then the incredible Bible teaching and in the evening as we hear from people, from missionaries right around our world of what God is doing. We're already beginning to pray through and think through and plan for 21 and 22. And you know, it's incredible that this ministry has been going now for, this is the 84th year, but it just doesn't happen. It costs money. And it, for that week, it costs approximately 30,000 pounds to run. And so in thinking through, how do we continue this ministry? How do we realize this vision that started all those years ago? And how do we engage people in mission and keep that profile there? And we would love to invite you to prayerfully consider joining with us to committing to be a friend of Bangor Worldwide. If you would like to commit to giving perhaps five, maybe 10 pounds per month to enable us to continue this ministry. But in any commitment, any friendship, there are always two sides and we are going to be committed to you as well. We will send out to you a monthly prayer update of what is happening with the missionaries that we are supporting, enable you to pre-book for special events and our opening nights and pre-book seats. And as a bonus, if you sign up before the 31st of August, we will give you a free copy of this book by Gary Miller, Need to Know. Our heart is to channel money out to the missionaries, to serve these people that are coming, that are speaking, these partners that we have all over the world. Because why we all cannot go, we can give, we can pray. So as we step out in faith and as we plan the next few years, we would love you to join us because we believe as we do take that step and we believe that God will provide through his people, we would ask you to join us in praying that he will and this will continue so as we can pass this baton on to the next generation and the next. That someone is standing here in Ward Park in Bangor in another 85 years talking about what God has done through this ministry. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.